The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Good evening, everyone. It, we are very, very fortunate to have Philip here, and it's with great gratitude and joy that I welcome you here, Philip, to share the Dharma with us. Um, Philip has been my mentor and primary teacher for a number of years, and and he embodies the Dharma with such wisdom and grace and compassion and joy. And it's very practical, as you'll see, in how to apply the Dharma and integrate it into your life. He's the author of the book, Dancing with Life. There are some cards out there with his website, but it's simply dharmawisdom.org. And it has wonderful um, availability in a study guide with his book. And Philip is now the co-guiding teacher of Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Woodacre, California. And he's been on the teacher's council there, a senior Dharma teacher, for many years. He brings 40 years of background in the yoga tradition and 25 years in the Vipassana tradition, primarily in the forest um, tradition of Vipassana. Uh, Philip has lived... Um, has also started something called the Life Balance Institute that he, he consults with businesses and trains leaders. And he comes from many worlds. He was at one time in the world of um, Manhattan and publishing and the CEO, chief editor of uh, Esquire magazine. And he left that world at age 40 to go follow the path of the inner life. And... Uh, some of you may know him from his articles on meditation in the yoga journal that he's written for many years. So without any further accolades, I'll turn it over to Philip. Thank you. So um, I'm very glad to be here. And thank you individually, each of you, for coming out this evening and uh, letting us share the Dharma together. It's always such a pleasure to do that and to see people that I have not seen before. Is, uh, I, I really enjoy doing that, getting to feel your presence in the Dhamma, as it were. So it's quite useful. I'm, uh, in the, the way I've planned this time, if I, if I remember it correctly, is that I was going to speak for, oh, 35, 40 minutes and then take uh, questions. And uh, if, as I'm going through, I may also say, do you have any questions about this at a given point or another? Because I want to serve you as best I am able in terms of, of your practice, to inspire your practice. I am someone who trusts practice. So I'm all for reading. I'm all for conceptualization but always in the service of the actual experience. There's other orientations. There's other ways to view that. But that's what I have come to trust in my life. I feel as though that I've inherited this from my teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, and it's part of what he inherited from his teacher, Ajahn Chah. This felt experience, the immediacy of it, that daily life being a key part of practice, not separate from practice, not secondary to practice, but actually just another form of practice, all built around the felt experience of the moment. 
this knowing directly, this intuitive knowing. We cannot practice insight. This is an insight practice, Vipassana, but the paradox of that is that we cannot practice insight. What we can do through mindfulness, a number of techniques within mindfulness, and other techniques that are part of Vipassana, we can create favorable conditions where insight might arise. But when it arises, it's like that apple falling from the tree. What an amazing thing that I'm having this moment of insight. The response being one of gratitude, not one of ownership. Wow, that's this, this is really a valuable insight. So appreciative of this insight to be a cherished, to, to have so much gratitude towards. And then that's it. No, no doing anything with it. No taking possession of it. As our practice matures, we will have more moments of insight. But there can be a number, a large, large number of instances of a particular insight arising before we ever know that we know that insight. We can sometimes get a little confused when we have a big moment of understanding, a big moment of, of uh, like t- total realization of something, and we go, wow, I've got it. We're beware of that thought. <laughs> you just stepped away from having it in that way. And yet it seems so true. It seems so clear. And uh, in my own experience, I can think of so many times particularly in all the, don't say the first 10 or 15 years of my practice, where it seemed like, well, of course this is it. Of course I would experience life this way. I mean, no other way makes any sense. And just have such confidence, right, that, well, of course. And then, poof, you know, back to this uh, this uh, splitting, this uh, losing oneself and and all the hindrances and so forth after an hour or a few days or even a few weeks back to the regular. So learning not to try to possess, not assuming anything, but always in a beginner's mind, always in a don't know mind, always being available to the Dharma. Am I available to the Dharma in this moment? Right now, are you available to the Dharma? Can the Dhamma flow through you right now? So you're driving to work. Am I available right now to the Dharma? You're having this interaction with this boss that is not being fair to you and is blaming you and putting more responsibility on you simultaneously. It's completely unfair. It uh, makes no sense. You're totally not being seen. You're doing, it's not a fair power relationship. Are you available for the Dharma in that moment? Being available for the Dharma is not based on certain conditions. We practice in order to be available to the Dharma under all conditions. The more that happens, 
the more we see the wisdom of it and the more we're willing to do that. It is a slow process. It takes years and years. Most of us are still a work in progress. Maybe someone in the room is not and is being very modest about that. And we really appreciate you and we'd actually like to know more about how you've done that. But for the rest of us, we are a work in, in progress. I, I described being at uh, Spirit Rock one time with the Dalai Lama, and we were uh, we were having uh, uh, th- th- three traditions Buddhist teachers retreat at Spirit Rock, and there were hundreds of Buddhist teachers there, and the Dalai Lama came for a couple of days and was teaching, and during part of that time. Uh, we'd had a number of staff and volunteer people around Spirit Rock give immense amounts of time, extra time, in order to get all this ready because it was very complicated to uh, pull this off. And so in appreciation for the, the staff and the volunteers, we asked if we asked the Dalai Lama if he'd be willing to, in our upstairs walking room, not in the big hall where all these hundreds of people were, but in the upstairs walking room, which uh, held about 100 people, would he be willing to uh, talk and answer questions from the staff and uh, the, the volunteers? And so he said he would. And so we had this very tender, wonderful session with the Dalai Lama. And he, so he sat there for a few minutes. And then he said, so do you have any questions? And this one person holds up the hand, and it was a long-term practitioner. And he said, you know, I've been practicing the Dharma all these years, and particularly in these last number of years, really so intensely. And I don't feel as though I've made any progress. What do you do? You don't feel as though you're making any progress. The whole room went completely still. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. Because, of course, everybody wanted to know what, you know what the Dalai Lama would say about this. Because we all have those moments, huh? Sure. That, uh, again, maybe there's someone in the room that's the exception. But there's, there's those moments of discouragement, those moments of getting lost in our views and opinions about how it's supposed to be and how we're supposed to progress. And so he's, the Dalai Lama sat there for quite a long time without saying anything. And we all just sat there with him. And finally he said, you know, sometimes I feel like that. And this ripple in the room, the Dalai Lama feels like that. And he said, and then I think back to how my actual behavior is, my, my, my actual speech, and my, my actual uh, thoughts. And I can see that, oh, yes, over the last five years or ten years, there's been a little progress. There's been a little change. And that's enough. This uh, ease of being with our practice, not having to have our practice deliver the goods. I recently, at the beginning of this year, gave a talk to my local sangha, which you can listen to online at dharmawisdom.org called, Where's My Reward? Because one of the things that happens to us, where's our reward? We're really practicing right speech, or we're really practicing generosity, or we're really practicing compassion. And slowly this ego of ours gets in there and starts going, yeah, I'm really doing this. I'm really doing this. And pretty soon it gets to thinking it's doing it, right? 
And then after a certain period of time, it kind of goes, yeah, and so where's my reward for all of this? It's so natural that this will happen to us. When it does, we smile. We just smile and have compassion towards that in us which needs the reward. Nothing wrong with that part of us. It's actually a beneficial thing many times. And it, and it wants to do so good, that part of us. It's got so much enthusiasm at times. So it just wants the reward. But we, this knowing, that in us which knows, knows that there's something larger than that immediate sense of our own reward. We are trusting, we have faith in alignment with practice. We are following the Eightfold Path in its entirety. We are living from faith, living with our intention, from our intention, the second of the Eightfold Path, to meet each moment as we're going towards our spiritual goal and also as we're going to our daily life goals, living each moment with intention. Goal being something that's always in the future. Goal not here and now. Goal representing direction. Goal representing strategy for allocation of resources. But not here and now. If the goal were here and now, it would not be a goal. It would be a realization. It's easy to get confused about that. And so with goal, we, we, we know how to spend our time. We know how to spend our resources. We give up our vacation time to sit. Or if it's a daily life goal, we work hard to get uh, more skilled at something, to earn money for this reason or that, or to help more people. We're, we're, we're motivated. We're going in a direction. Intention, different than goal, as I would understand it, is here and now. What is my intention in this step as I'm going towards my goal? What's my intention right now in this step? Sometimes when I'm going towards my spiritual goal, I, I feel right on the path. Other times, I'm not sure if I'm on the path or not. And sometimes I wake up and realize, whoa, I've wandered off here. In each of those three situations, this in, uh, this emphasis on what is my intention in this step is what keeps me on the path, gets me back on the path, helps me determine whether or not I'm on the path. Because in this moment, I'm either causing harm or not. In this moment, I'm practicing right speech or not. In this moment or not, there's wise action. There's wise livelihood. In this moment, right now. So in this moment, you have a job that in general is a good job in terms of it being wholesome and using skillful means. But in this moment in the job, are you causing suffering or not? In this moment, and taking this step, is it skillful or unskillful? Not as judgment, not as judgment, but as discernment. Oh, now this is causing harm. Oh, I need to adjust here. This is gossip. This is hurtful speech. This is not useful speech. This is speech that's true and useful, but it's not timely. This isn't practicing the Dharma. Just here now. No, no big deal about it. No, uh, no comment on ourselves. None of that. But just, oh, 
and back back to the path right now. Natural, easy, integrative, integrative, wholeness, wholeness, 360, imminent, arising out of this moment of our lives with this transcendent goal, yes, but imminent here and now. The Dharma is always available here and now. This moment of Nibbana, as, as some teachers would tell us, is actually available here and now. Just a brief moment of it, and we're going to come back to that in another way in just a few moments. But this, this, this moment, uh, the Venerable Buddha Dasa says that if we didn't have these, what he terms, everyday moments of Nibbana, we would all go crazy. We'd go start raving mad. And I think that's a quite a good reflection. Because if every moment we were intensely clinging in an active way, do you really think your nervous system could handle that? And it's, you know how you can sometimes get with the clinging. It's, it's really taxing. There's a lot of dukkha in that clinging, as the Buddha tells us. And so, oh, any moment of returning to the path, any moment of starting over, Ah, here, now, immediate, this intention, living, living from Dharma, being one with Dharma as best I am able, not being perfect, not being perfect, but being as I am in this moment with the Dharma, palpable, felt, direct knowing, direct knowing, the felt experience of this, imminent, embodied, embodied, when I did the meditation the way I did, because I had to choose to, it was a short meditation, so I had to really make a conscious choice to speak at all in the meditation. But I wanted you to uh, be exposed at least once to one way of working with the elements, particularly the earth element, in terms of coming into the moment. Uh, so many people, uh, when they uh, practice at home or even on retreat, really struggle to collect and unify the mind. And whether you're doing some sort of a samadhi practice going towards jhana, or some sort of a vipassana practice going, going towards vipassana, there's this whole initial time period, this whole in initial aligning yourself with your practice that, that is uh, re to reach what is called neighborhood concentration or access concentration, uh, aware of labels, but just to locate it for those of you who are familiar with those terms. But there's a whole period of time which I call collecting and unifying the mind because that's what's actually happening. There's not a label to that. There is this collecting the mind. The attention's here, it's there, it's everywhere. It wants, it's here for moments and it's off, and it's off over here. Also, you collect it. You collect all this capacity of your mind. You're collecting it patiently, slowly, gently, Sometimes with a certain amount of firmness, but you're collecting your attention and, and then you are sustaining, you're unifying your capacity for attention around your chosen object. The chosen object may be a single object, like the breath, and that's what I was asking you to do this evening. But it can also be that you're going to be collected and unified around this moment of breath this awareness of wanting, this awareness of longing, this awareness of tickling in the big toe, this awareness of this moment of stabbing in the back. But each moment, you're there with it. 
you're there, you're there. This collecting and unifying in all. Even if there's any exceptions to this. I actually don't think I've met within our tradition, except for certain teachers, uh, and which I can't, I just can't know. But certainly, when anyone I've ever worked with, every one of us, including myself, could, uh, without changing who we are, have a more collected and unified mind. And in your practice, that is so useful. I would have people emphasize that far more than worrying about getting to jhana. I would have you start out having ease where you can quickly, under a ever-increasingly variety of circumstances, collect and unify the mind. Collecting and unifying the mind around what's true right now, but also what's true right now in terms of your intention. You start to see how the collecting and unified mind ties back into the Eightfold Path. If you can't get behind yourself, it's very hard to live from intention. And if you're you're scattered everywhere, very hard to do. A small amount of improvement from wherever you are can make a fairly significant difference. On retreat, maybe not so much, because maybe on retreat you're you're quite... uh, uh, collected and unified now, at least part of the time, so it, it would take a fair about more to you to really make a difference. But in your daily life, I would be very surprised if a small amount would make a big difference. With this understanding, collected and unified the mind around the Eightfold Path of living the Dhamma in daily life. So that we're present, we're here. How to be present, being present in the body, is for many of us the, the easiest way to stay present so that you develop a habit of being aware of your body moment to moment in your day. And your body then becomes your teacher. So you're sitting there in that meeting and you're very uh, unappreciative of how this person who's presenting is really being disrespectful of your suggestions and your ideas, or just stole your idea and is presenting it as theirs. All of this happens to us, of course. And you're, you're, you're sort of like being big about it in some way. But your body's got this tension, or your belly's going crazy, or your shoulders are going up, or your hands are a little wet. Ah, there's some hindrance of mind here. There's some distancing myself from this moment. There's some demand that this moment be other than it is. I'm taking birth in my preference in this moment. Nothing wrong with the preference, but that taking birth in the preference. And they're going into the clinging. And when there's clinging, inevitably there's suffering. And so the body becomes our teacher and it helps us. And it also gives us many resources for letting loose of that clinging in this very moment. So very useful, the body. One way to develop more of a continuity of body awareness is through awareness of the elements. And the earth element is a particularly accessible one for many people. If you're doing practice, if you're doing formal sitting time, again, for a number of people, I've been teaching this in these last few years, 
this finding the body, the earth element in the body, and then releasing it to earth gives you a way to get present, to get grounded. Just for my information, uh, how many of you uh, uh, were able to do that, just a show of hands in some way? So about a third of the room. I would, I would encourage you to experiment with that some more. I know you have your own way of practice, and it's a good way of practice, and I'm not trying to change your way of practice. I'm only adding to your experience and suggesting something like this. It's not easy to come in on, a, on an evening like this and have me do this and you go with it. Not easy at all. But this is the time I had to talk with you. So I didn't have, I didn't have this chance on retreat. So I, I took the time that I had. I took the opportunity I had to do this. As we become more present in our daily life, we start to become aware of the power of pleasant and unpleasant, of Vedana, the second of the four foundations of mindfulness. How unconscious our relation is to Vedana, how pervasive our uh, uh, relationship to pleasant and unpleasant is, the degree that it conditions the mind state the degree that it affects our thoughts, our words, and our actions. So we've all been taught that when there's something pleasant arises, that we, we want to have it. If we already have it, we want to keep it and get more of it, maybe. If it's unpleasant and we see it coming, at all costs, we don't want that to happen to us. If we're already having this unpleasantness when body ache or emotional pain, we want to get rid of it as soon as we can. Thus, our dance with life becomes like a puppet on two strings. So we're dancing with pleasant and unpleasant. If it's pleasant, we're pulled this way. If it's unpleasant, we're pulled this way. That is a kind of dance with life. But it's not a very rich it's not a very full experience of dancing with life, as I would discern it, as I would describe it. I term that uh, relationship to life that is reactive. Reactive to Vedna, reactive to pleasant and unpleasant. Clinging to pleasant, wanting pleasant. Uh, clinging to wanting to get rid of the unpleasant. In all three times, we can uh, so want the past to be other than it was. You can be having your whole life defined by wanting the past to be other than it is. This is one of the uh, sad times that uh, when I'm working with students, when I, when I realize, well, this person has spent five years, 10 years, 20 years with a huge portion of their energy uh, caught in this demand that something untowards not have happened, that this wasn't, uh, this wasn't fair and it shouldn't be that way. And yet, of course, you know, to demand a better past, good luck, you know, demanding a better past. And yet it's so easy to do, both on a personal level, about our family, about our community, about our country, to be demanding a better past. That would not be, as I would understand, being in the moment. You can be... Uh, 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 affected by the past, be reflecting on the past, feel the wave of the past coming through you, 
and even feel that demand, but to see that demand as what it is, as a thought in the mind, not to be clung to. To have the intention that in this moment, I will not cling to something from the past or the present or the future in terms of wanting, if it's pleasant, to stay or have more of it or if it's unpleasant to go away. And how many times have we remembered pleasant things from our past and wanted to have those pleasant things now and said, oh, if I just knew then what I know now, if I just had that energy I had when I was 20 years old or the sex drive or the whatever it is that you have that thought, wanting, 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 and there's something from the past to be present now. And the suffering in that, the duke in that, so know to be present and say, this moment is this way. This moment is like this. This is the mindfulness. This moment is like this. And then to relate to it, not from the pleasant or unpleasantness of it, but from your deeper values, from your wise understanding, the first of the Eightfold Path, from your intention, your cultivated intention, your choice intention that you've cultivated as habit, as practice over all of these months, years, to relate to it that way gives you choice. When the mind's reactive, there's very little choice. When the mind's responsive, there's a lot of choice. There's a lot of choice. We may, through our preference, uh, push and pull at the external, but we don't push and pull at our receiving the moment. We just receive the moment. This moment is like this. Knee pain is like this. Not being able to sit on the cushion is now like this for me. It's just like this. Having, having uh, insecurity about whether or not you're going to have your job feels like this. So much freedom in the immediate, in the here and now. Oh, don't know if I'm going to have my job feels like this. Feeling vulnerable, feeling scared feels like this. It is empowering. As long as our mindfulness is coming along, all the tools of mindfulness which Mark and others are teaching you weekly or monthly or in these day-longs, as long as you are developing the mindfulness that contain the moment, without having a strong presence, without being grounded in mindfulness, grounded in equanimity, grounded in the body, knowing how to take refuge in the breath and to resource outside what it is you become mindful of, it can be overwhelming. So you can, it's possible to get ahead of yourself in doing this practice. So wanting to uh, uh, go slow, steadily with ourselves, not jump way ahead, not, not getting to some sort of conceptual practice, but coming as we go along. In the second noble truth, the Buddha says that there is a cause of suffering that can be known. The cause of suffering that he is describing, the cause of dukkha, uh, dukkha meaning suffering, meaning the pain of life, meaning the instability of life, meaning the uh, unsustainableness of life, meaning the insubstantialness of life, the stress of life, the unsatisfactoriness of the life or any moment in life when we're just in this uh, grasping mode. He is not saying that you can put an end to the physical and emotional pain of life. 
He's not saying you can put an end to life changing. He's not saying that you can put an end to the way this life is and what's manifest in this life. He is saying that our suffering, so much of our suffering, is not those objective truths. That's the first noble truth, those three kinds of suffering. But is the subjective suffering, some would say neurotic, suffering that comes from the way the mind relates to the, the, the grasping of pleasant, the, the, the grasping of wanting the unpleasant to go away. That's what he's saying. But in the second noble truth, and this is what I want to end the, the presentation with, he says that this truth is to be understood by releasing clinging. So there is a cause of our suffering. What is the cause of our suffering? Clinging, and he names the things we cling to. This clinging, this thirst, this tanha, this thirst. So we, 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 we want things in the, the physical and emotional, the sense gates, all of the sense gates. We, we want things to become a certain way. We want things to cease to be. These, these three kinds of clinging, these three kinds of thirst being caught, grasping, grasping, grasping. So he says this in the way I teach it in Dancing with Life, which I learned from my teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, which uh, is based on the Samyutta Nikaya, the, uh, one of the oldest Buddhist texts, one of the early uh, texts written, is uh, that there are these insights around each of the noble truths. And uh, in each instance, there's the intellectual presentation, philosophical presentation, if you prefer. So there's clinging. There's, there's a cause of suffering, this subjective suffering. It's our clinging to it. Is that true or not? You can think about that. You can use all your powers of observation and talk to people and read things and do anything you want. It's a, it's a reflective practice where we get to use the old coconut, which we like to do here in the West. But then the second insight of each truth is an actual practice, an actual felt experience of something. And that second insight of the second noble truth is that, suf suf that clinging is to be understood, suffer I'm sorry, the cause of suffering is to be understood by releasing the cause of it. You release the cause of suffering. The origin of suffering is to be known by releasing it. You release the origin of suffering. This is how, this is how you are to know that there is a cause of suffering, by releasing it. We tend to think of this in terms of the third noble truth about there is an end to suffering. But he's already, in the second noble truth, the very first teaching, the one Dharma teaching that all three schools say contained all the Dharma. This is the four noble truths. So he's saying to, uh, to know the truth of clinging, to know what causes your subjective suffering by releasing it. So why would he be saying that? And the first noble truth, all he says is that suffering is to be understood, which I teach as filling the ouch of suffering. But here he's saying not just to know clinging, so not just feel yourself clinging, but release your clinging. Now, why would he be saying that? This is our last little thing here. So what would you think? Why would, he, why would the instruction be that way? Because from a psychological point of view, it's very interesting very developmentally oriented. Someone, please. Well, it's a really interesting question, but this is just been on our minds since we started 
So um, remember now, first of all, I'm talking about their relationship to the Duke of the world, not the fact that, as I said, the physical and emotional pain of life doesn't go away. Your body will hurt if it hurts. Uh, And this is a very good question because many people uh, uh, feel as though that, oh, that this clinging, ugh, this is terrible clinging. And they do have an aversive relationship to clinging, just as they can have an aversive relationship to the mind wandering. That's not wise. The mind just wanders. There's no reason to have an aversive relationship to it. That's, again, the second arrow kind of shooting. We shoot ourselves, the Buddha said, with a second arrow. And all of the second noble truth is about that second arrow, that clinging. So we have a, we have a degree of pain, uh, that is physical or emotional, and then we so resist it, and that creates this much larger effect of suffering, of dukkha, because of our relationship to it. So no, there's not to be aversion to dukkha, but there's also to see, is there choice? So I need to pick up this cup if I want to keep my water cup warm. But if this whole time I've been uh, holding my hand and arm up here like this so I'm ready to put it on the cup at any time. Eventually, this would cause quite a bit of discomfort, right? No reason to have uh, aversion to the fact that I'm holding the cup. But to realize, this isn't so wise. Do I have to hold it like this? I think I can put it down. But how do I know if I can put it down? Well, I don't know for sure. Maybe my arm won't go down. <laughs> but I could at least invite it. As I said in the invite letting the body rest on earth, I can invite that experience and see what happens. Oh. I didn't have to throw away the top of the cup. I didn't have to have aversion to the, to the discomfort. I just saw that it was causing suffering. And therefore, I... I intended the release as best I am able. So there you are. You're interacting with your your difficult family member. And you hear coming out of your mouth uh, unkind words. Maybe well-deserved, given what they just said to you. But you recognize, oh, no, this is suffering. This is suffering. And so you intend to not continue that way. Maybe you're able to stop going that way, or maybe you then say more words. But your intention over and over again, if that's what you're connecting into, not because you have aversion to those words that you said, but, those, but you saw those words suffering, and your intention is not to cause suffering to yourself or another. So you just put it down like the cup. There's not... There's not papanchama, there's not this association of aversion or condemnation. I said in the guided meditation, again, everything I did in that meditation was very deliberate. Not, not judging, not comparing, not fixing. These, uh, the way we tend to relate to our experience is from this judging mind. And if we're not judging it, then we're comparing it to previous moments or else to others, and, or else then we're trying to fix everything. But, oh, no, I can just put down the arm just now. Just this immediacy of, of living the Dharma. The dance with life is like this step of dance. If you're dancing with someone, it is this step, right? 
you either get your foot stepped on or you step on their foot in this step or you bump into others in this very step, right? It's not some future step. The dance, as you know, the dance is this moment, right? And playing a note with music. That note's only in this moment. If it's an E flat, it's an E flat right now. You know, it's not an E flat when it's supposed to be a B flat. It's right now. This immediacy of it. And again, not out of aversion and not rushing through it. But, oh, what's my choice here? What's, what's living the Dhamma here? Just as a habit of mine, as a way of cultivated relatedness to the moment. So you had your hand up here with answering the question. It does. It's just uncomfortable. Right. That's. And that's one of the things you learn when you let loose of that thought. That is that clinging. This I don't like it like this. It shouldn't be like this. I want it to be otherwise. That's what you're letting loose of. And yes, it changes. Not always, but many times for many things in our lives. And the more we practice the water, the range of that. So yes. So other thoughts about this, letting loose of, why let loose of clinging? Why, why would this be important? Well, I think what's important about it is if you don't find some way of doing it, they're going to accumulate so much that they're going to be absolutely You get more and it builds up. It's going to flow. That's true too. That's true. That's true too. You get to know yourself a little bit and you can see yourself getting ready to clean an old thought, the one that you've been doing for decades, mm-hmm. then you have a little bit of an idea of what you're going to get yourself into. I've played that movie before. Yes. Yeah. See, that? See that's just the suffering movie. Don't need to put that one on. Yeah. No, that's true. So just, again, thinking developmentally. Yes. That's, uh, that's not specifically addressing what I was asking, but that's you bring up a very valuable, valuable point. When I said about the mindfulness needs to come along with your opening to the present moment, and that you want to respect the Dharma and respect this is this practice is not risk-free, because yes, in fact, you uh, you, you know, we we get reactive minds sometimes to protect ourselves. That's quite true. And over time, we let loose of more and more of this reactivity of mind, and we can afford to because we've got the grounding. We, we have a base. We have a container, the mindfulness and the metta and the compassion practice, along with these other parts, uh, create this container that protects us. So that that's what protects us. We're, we're lodged somewhere other than in this vedna. 
this identification with Vedna and all. So, yes, that's a real insight that it, it happens that way. So, um, first of all, anyone else? Well, I was going to say that it seems like you can't really understand it until you let it go. Yes, yes. So, if I tell you that there's a world out there, and oh, there's, there's nature, and not far from here at all, there's this big river. And you, you've lived in this room your whole life, and no one had ever told you that before. And you go, river? I don't believe there's rivers. And then I say, no. And I show you pictures of rivers. You know, and I show you a movie that's got rivers in it. And there's these books. And then you say to me, you know, I now believe in rivers. But you stay in this room. So have you? do you know rivers? Yes, you believe in rivers. But you don't know river. In the same way, you can understand, yes, I clean. And the clinging is the cause of the suffering. Intellectually, you get it. You can say it to yourself. You can go teach others. But the actual knowing, this intuitive, this vipassana, vipassana is this intuitive knowing, this direct knowing, that only occurs in seeing the river, putting your foot in the river. You have to get out of the room. And clinging is a room. It's a room. It's a real prison in many ways. And we can spend our whole lives in varying degrees of that clinging. And we, and our parts of our lives are around a certain issue or around certain people that we get caught in so much. Or this reoccurring habit. There's all these different ways we can get imprisoned by it. We can get caught in it. And how to put it down is by putting it down. If you don't put it down, you don't know the opposite of putting it down. And once you know the freedom, then you've created a whole new seed. Once you've been out of the room, you may come back in the room, but you're no longer going to think that this is the only place you can exist. I want to go walk by the river. So you go walk by the river. And you're not always able to, but when you're able, you go walk by the river. The same way with letting loose of that moment of clinging has that same effect. You are, you're slowly teaching yourself that you can go walk by the river, that you don't have to stay in this state of clinging. You, you were slowly teaching yourself that. So this becomes uh, this, uh, a, a verified faith, which ultimately becomes absolute faith in that way. That Now, there is another way. There is this middle way. There's this middle way. I have this choice. It is uh, from my experience of practice and all, understanding the second noble truth in this manner is what prepares us for those moments of, of cessation and all of the third noble truth. And also, is the, the, those moments, the, the, we practice the Eightfold Path in order to be able to do this releasing of this moment of clinging. And they, so they support each other in this way. And as, as, we, as we let loose of the clinging, like the lady was saying about if you don't, if you're not, uh, if, you, if you let loose of your complaining about the body hurting when you're sitting, if you let loose of it, you then start to understand the first noble truth in a new way. You understand why it's truly noble. So there's a kind of a, a mystery to this. There's a kind of reconfiguration uh, that the Buddha is pointing to, in my view, that is much more subtle than the initial reading of such things. That, oh, 
I really get it. I really get why it's noble. I get why it's a hard practice, the first noble truth. To be to truly bear the truth of the first noble truth is noble. It takes kuer, it takes heart, it's courage in that way. And then your relationship to those moments that are real suffering becomes something different. There's something different. Sometimes this happens naturally in life. I was talking to someone earlier today around being with someone during their cancer experience. You can have such intimacy that, yes, it's terrible, but it's also beautiful in some way. That is actually the nobility of the first noble truth in that moment. may not have seen it in that language and all, but that's what's being pointed to. But it's not, that's based on a condition and you being right to do all this. So there's a lot of conditionality in that, but, uh, that example of being with the person with the cancer and all. And I don't say all that lightly. I've been there and done that. But the freedom that's offered is that so that all of your suffering you have this ease with all of your suffering. Again, not all at once, but this this meandering, some forward, some back way that we stumble around, most of us, towards this greater relationship with freedom. So I, 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 I've heard such good things about you as a sangha that I've not spoon-fed this evening, you know. I'm, I'm sort of saying, hey, you know, are you available to the Dharma? Questions, comments, anything that you'd like to do? Well, I'm still sort of resonating with what uh-huh. said. Um, I can see myself clinging or having a feeling of aversion, but I can't necessarily just say, well, I see that, so I'll just, I'll just let it go. It won't be there anymore. Um, I mean, smaller things right, in sure. life I can, but I know there's Right. Well, you start with the small things, and then, uh, but with the small things and the large things, uh, I I quote uh, the Venerable Sumedho in this book, and he says, so how do you put something down? How do you stop clinging to it? By attending to it, by being mindful of it. Mindful with compassion, but mindful of it. The attending, this is hard to believe, but it has been my experience. I did not believe it when I first heard this, but it is now my experience that if you attend to any moment, it will eventually self-liberate. If you attend to it. It's not that easy to attend to the moment because you get off into your reactivity around it. So you're not with the, you know, you're having this difficult, uh, you're, you're very upset over your sister. And you're like that with your sister. And that's a nice smile, huh? <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, I, I sometimes do that, and I don't know if it's right or not to do that. But anyway, um, so you, uh, you this clinging and... Uh, you go, you go. Okay, that guy I can't remember his name, but he said something about putting it down and all this. But then you're immediately thinking, but you know she shouldn't be, and that's what am I going to do? And so you're not actually in there with it at all. And you say, then you tell me the next time I come through, you say, well, you know I tried that and that didn't work. And then I say to you, but did you try? Did you actually stay with? So the first process is learning to stay with, collecting and unifying, being present. With, with these attributes, this relationship 
being present in a certain relationship way that allows this attending to the moment. Then sati, sati is, um, is, is this, uh, it, it means attending, standing near. Uh, Venerable Sumedho refers to it as standing under, but that this, this feeling of, of standing there with it. But it's, it's naked, it's raw, it's the experience itself. When they say bare attention, that's one way. There's many ways to understand bare attention, but that's one way to understand bare attention. You're just with it, not all your views and opinions about it. So it's, this is your inquiry, and I, I'm not bothered by your having this question. I'm encouraged by it. Because now you can go see for yourself. You have chosen your homework assignment. <laughs> Please inform me how it goes. Please. Yes. And, and when you set aside the thoughts, I think that all that's really left is the physical experience. So is that what we're talking well, about? Well, it's, no, it's, it's, it's a whole gestalt. It's a physical, emotional, it's a mind-body experience. But uh, So uh, uh, you've gotten a disappointment. And there, this disappointment is mirrored in the body. And it's mirrored in your mind in some way. And it's just, or if we got centers, the belly center, the body center, the heart center, the head center, if you want to use that language, it's in all three centers. This is disappointment. But there's a big difference between disappointment and, oh, I'm a bad person, disappointment and, oh, this always happens to me, I'm doomed, this is my, I'm cursed in some way, versus, oh, disappointment feels like this. Oh, I can feel the suffering of this. This hurts. Oh, how do I tend? If this, if this were my little girl and she was disappointed with this, how would I treat her? Would I be slapping her around, saying, oh, you know, you're worthless. This, you deserve this. Would I be saying to her, you know, this is our family curse. It's, you know, you can't escape. <laughs> Maybe not. And yet, as you attend to yourself, you realize, whoa, this is how I treat myself when I'm disappointed. Oh, so there is, what is the other way of treating myself that is attending to this? I don't mean to make this simple. This is not simple. I started out the whole thing with saying this is uh, years and years and years of practice. So it does require that sort of, that naming, though. If you're, if you're before the point where you can call it disappointment, I feel like that's kind of tricky. Yes, that, well, that's why I, I so emphasize the body. Because okay, so something feeling off feels like this. Yeah. Feeling off feels like this. I learned this feels like this again from the Venerable Sumato, and it's the most single useful thing that I've ever heard anyone say. This moment feels like this. Knee pain feels like this. Being confused feels like this. Being lost feels like this. You are not on one level lost when you're saying being lost feels like this because you're in relationship to. Everything I've pointed to this evening is how to skillfully be in relationship to experience in the context of uh, release from suffering, not from getting everything you want. That's a whole, that'd be a whole different kind of thing. Pay $500 for an hour of it or whatever. <laughs> And it's where I'm from cause you to close or to open? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I,
there's somebody in the room who's having just the opposite experience. <laughs> in, in fact, uh, the uh, finding the conditions where we can hear the Dharma is skillful. So there's, there's so uh, there's nothing wrong with you know when insofar as there is choice. Sometimes there's no choice. Um, uh, then uh, then so it's fine to have a preference in that way, just not to cling. And as to answer where I'm from, I grew up in Tennessee in the Appalachians, and then spent ten years in New York, and then have been in California for the last uh, twenty years. Yes. Um, the other day, I was just an example. I want to know if I'm ending right. I was being pulled off nicely, but the reaction that came up was huge embarrassment, mm-hmm. huge shame. Mm-hmm. And um, I just remember saying, what is this? And it was like shame. But the thoughts were coming up, this is much bigger than is warranted. It shouldn't be here. Uh-huh. Excellent. And then within like five minutes, it dissipated, and I realized it must have come from my childhood, this feeling. Mm-hmm. But this person who was coming off didn't mean it to the degree that my body was. That's right. Yeah. Right. So that was clinging to the past in a certain way. You that there had not been, you know, part of the Dharma is this purification process. It's tricky how we relate to that, but there's a purification process in the Dharma, and part of that purification process is we develop new relationships with our wounds. Does not mean that the wound goes away necessarily, but we have a new relationship to it. When you said, "Well, this is really big," that would be, from my way of understanding mindfulness. That was a moment when you started to investigate. And why could you investigate? Because you had fully received the experience. You knew the bigness. You couldn't have known the bigness had you not fully received the experience. So that's yes. That's where you self-corrected. So what that really was? Oh wow, this is large. This is disproportional to the stimulus. That would have been just recognition. But this shouldn't be. Yeah. It's got the judgment in it. But you cleaned out the judgment okay. and then with, in, with curiosity. Okay. So that was very skillful. Did everyone follow that and what you did? Just to quickly say, the way I hold mindfulness, that's the uh, being alert and connecting to a predominant experience like that embarrassment. So you, you connect to it. You sustain attention appropriately on it. That's Vataka and Vachara, for those of you who know the, the, the jhana factors. So you, you, you make the connection, you sustain the connection, you fully receive it. That involves a lot of body, but all, all the sense gates. You fully receive it, and then you investigate it as appropriate under the circumstance. Sometimes you don't have time to investigate very much. You've got to react. Or it's just, you know this too well, it's not worth investigating, or you don't have the energy, or just lots of different things. But you investigate to the degree that's appropriate. Sometimes just like, oh, and then you go on. But there, but So whatever's appropriate. And then you hold it as uh, with, with impersonal. You see that this too is conditioned to base. 
This, too, is just a moment of practice. You, this is what's with the equanimity. That impersonal nature, is, you're, it's very, 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 very important that we develop that equanimity, that, that knowing that it's impersonal, as we're getting more able to be mindful and stay fully present. That equanimity is the balance. Otherwise, uh, along with the mindfulness and the compassion. But otherwise, you can really tilt over one way or the other, and we have that happen on retreats, and you know, not so good sometimes for people. Yes. So let's take this a step further. She had a person telling her something that didn't fit well with her, but maybe the person uh, didn't mean that much harm, and she was saying it shouldn't be this way, but she accepted that it was that way. Let's say that it's a step further and it's violence. Um, and someone is being violent towards you and you say it shouldn't be this way, but actually that's correct. Um, how, what, how does the Dalai Lama teach those people who had Chinese communist violence um, how can you take it to... Well, um, I, I will come back to that, but just to take your immediate example first. So let's suppose that she's having too big a reaction, that she's, she's, everything she just described, she does, but then this person kind of gets, suddenly gets off on what they're doing, and they, they then start being inappropriate, having nothing to do with her reaction. She was attending to her internal experience. The internal experience is the internal experience. If in the external experience you go, this person has now exceeded my boundary, then uh, you, you have every right. And in Buddhism, you would, uh, as is appropriate, say, you are out of line. And you would, you would be empowered because you are, have clarity of mind to, in fact, hold your boundary more fully. Buddhism can get a bad rap in terms of that. Everybody just becomes passive. I don't see that in the Buddhist teachings. He don't have time to go from that. But anyway, it is you, you, because you're not caught in your own stuff, then you, well, your energy is available. You have the wisdom. And from my point of view, at least as important as you have access to your intuition. Because that's what we often lose when we're caught. Is this intuitive knowing about, well, what's, what can I do here? So therefore, you know what to do. You've got the power. And you can, if, if you say, hey, you've exceeded my boundaries. And then they come back at you. You're OK because you're present for yourself. And you can feel the wave of that energy in your body. And you can just treat it as one more body moment. And you can hold the space. So um, the way I, again, this is dancing with life. This is not like sheltering yourself from life. From, again, from my view, um, you, you know the story, and it's been told so many times, of the, the, the two, the two uh, Tibetan monks who meet after both have been imprisoned by the Chinese. And uh, one is talking about being captured and says, well, I've forgiven them. The other one says, well, I have not, and I'm not going to forgive them. And the first says, well, I guess they've still got you in that prison, huh? And uh, that can be true in terms of Mom or dad still have you in that prison, you know. That one who uh, broke your heart or acted inappropriately towards you. Even ourselves. Even ourselves, absolutely. I, I 
guess I just would like to clarify. You talked about you equated habit energy with thinking. So I never thought of habit as a form of thinking. No, I, well, I, I, I may have misspoke or missed. Uh, so let me just clarify without saying what I did or didn't do. Um, um, I, I point to habit a lot because you have a habit of clinging. You have a series of habits in your mind. There is, there is your, your hindrances, the arising of hindrances in each of our minds has a lot of habit to it, a lot of patterning. You can create new habits of mind that are, that are more dharmic, that are more healthy, that are more balanced, that, that, are, that are less uh, likely for hindrances to arise. So the, the, what we cling to, we tend to cling to out of habit, out of earlier conditions. As you're conditioned to something, um, say that harsh speech has, has a certain um, trauma for you because that's your mother used harsh speech. So then there would be a kind of clinging around any harsh speech. It would like upset you. That's your habit of mind. It's a, it's a conditioned habit of mind. But as you infuse each moment with awareness, oh no, that's just da 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 over and over again, the liberation of that, over and over and over again, you create a new habit of mind. You still will find it unpleasant, most likely, in this lifetime, who knows, but most likely that there will be that, you will have that image. The, the harsh speech has a symbol. It, it's... It's not just a sign, it's a symbol. That's another whole Dharma talk. But it, it's, um, uh, so, but it will not have the same charge, but it will still be charged, but you won't, you won't, you won't be, it won't have the stickiness. The charge is there, but you don't stick to it. Does that make sense to you? So you're developing this new habit of mind where there's not the stickiness. I, 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 I relate clinging to stickiness. <laughs> Because it's like, okay, something may hang around, but am, am I, is there stickiness that's involved in my clinging? So there's, some, there's something unpleasant that's arising. I've gone through, a, I went through a whole series of health things for the last uh, 18 months. And uh, there were lots of unpleasant moments. And so my question, my issue was, am I going to object to this or not? Because I wasn't going to change in the short term any of these moments of unpleasantness. And what my practice was, and what was so beautiful about the practice, is how little I objected. I just did not object to the discomfort. And as you were saying, what a huge difference. Like, whew, who knew that this fruit would come in this form? But it really did. It was just, and again, there's nothing, there's nothing special about me. I just practiced. Uh, I'm just like each of you. I just, and that was a, there would have been something else that would have come that would have caught me. That level of, of physical intensity and its consistency over that longer period of time did not particularly catch me. Just, that happened to be where my practice was with these conditions right now. We're all like that, and it doesn't matter if I've not been able to do it or not, because this is I'm living the Dhamma, I'm being available. So how, how much fruit's coming, it's got all this karmic cause that's much bigger than my thing. All I can do is show up and be available. Do we need to stop? Is this? I need to have one more question. Okay. I, I want to dedicate merit and also. Yes. Um, I have a question. You, you recognize it and, you know, okay, I recognize it. What happens if you go to that analyzing and you want to hang on to it? 
So if, if, if you're doing this in daily life or if you're doing this on retreat? All right, in daily life. Okay, say you're doing it in daily life. So they, that when you hear yourself saying the same thing for the third time, stop. <laughs> That's simple enough. <laughs> now, now, um, when I work with leaders, and I don't work with leaders telling leaders how to make more money or get more power. I work with leaders in terms of how to bring balance in their lives, how to live from their, their, from their deepest values. That's what I do. I, don't, uh, I could do all that other because of my background, but I, I deliberately have chosen not to. Because I live, the way I work with leaders is the way that I teach the Dharma. So it's, it's just, I don't use, I don't have them come into the Dharma, but it's the same kind of uh, uh, intention-based life. So, um, uh, and leaders, uh, I've said this once today already, but leaders, uh, almost all leaders think they're quite smart. Uh, that's, they have that kind of confidence in themselves. That's why they got to be leaders, you know. But they're all interested. It's seldom that I've met a leader who doesn't want more access to intuition. They're very interested in that. And so why am I saying this to you? Because, in fact, the, if we attend to the moment in this way, we can put it down from the conscious mind. But we're not getting rid of it. We're not denying it. We're not suppressing, repressing it. We're just directing attention somewhere else. It's there in the field. And many times, the insight... The solution, the personal insight, not big D Dharma insight, but the, the insight in terms of what's the solution, what's to be done here. Or it could be, you know, an insight around, oh, this is me causing something, I'm clinging here, whatever. In, in the putting it down, we come to the resolution of it. We, as opposed to keep churning it over in our heads, the churning it over in our heads is not necessarily the best way to figure it out. Were it the best way, you'd have already figured it out. Right? So you've tried that and it didn't work in this instance. So you, you leave it there, but you're not, uh, you know, burying it in some way. You're not like tossing it in the ocean. You're, you're just leaving it there and then you come back to it ever so often. But you don't come back to it, you know, this frantically, anything available. And then you leave it alone and then you come back to it. This uh, retreat and return, retreat and return. Let it be. In its time and place, it will be known. Are you ready to be known yet? You know, solution. Are you ready to be known? So this, I, I, I'm, I'm giving you a feel for not trying to be so specific. Although the rule of the three is, is a pretty darn good rule. <laughs> so we should stop. And uh, again, thank you for being so attentive. But we're going to, don't move yet, we're going to sit still for a moment and we're going to uh, share our merit with all beings. And then I'm going to ask that the bell be rung three times at the end. First, just an appreciation of uh, that you have been in the Dhamma. And notice what's true in your body right now. What's been stirred up in the body, becoming accustomed, habituated to noticing what's true in the body. 
Notice what's true in your heart. Your heart may have been pulled by more than one thing this evening. What's true in the heart? Being present to what's true in the heart without judging, comparing, or fixing. So powerful. So alive. So present. And what's true in the head center? All those thoughts, those images that might be bouncing around up there. One thought after another, this dialogue, this memory coming, this planning coming. Whatever got stirred in the head center, not judging it, not comparing it, not fixing it either. But, oh, look at that. And letting it be so that it calms on its own. As we learn to be more present, to be more mindful, to not be ensnared so much by the arising of pleasant and unpleasant, may the fruits of what we learn be a benefit to our loved ones, be a benefit to all those with whom we come in contact. May we be less and less a source of suffering for others as well as ourselves. Any merit that may have arisen from this practice, together as Sangha, individually as practitioner, we offer, we give freely, without condition, this merit to all beings to beings we approve of, to beings we disapprove of, to beings we know that we don't know. Whatever realm we offer this merit, may it be a benefit to all others. May all beings everywhere, those near, those far, those with two legs, those with four legs, those with no legs, those with many legs. May all beings in all forms be free from suffering. Thank you again for your kind attention. And I look forward to seeing you other places and somewhere along the path. Oh, there is that card that she said. I meant to say that. This little card, there's some of those outside. There's a free 52-week uh, class that you can take online. Just You get a little email, just a reflection a week for 52 weeks of Dancing with Life. And you just go to dharmawisdom.org or sign up for that. And there's also the dharmawisdom.org site many, many talks that I've given and many articles I've written. Some psychologist took it upon herself to classify uh, whatever your ailment is. Here's a talk for, here's a, an article for that ailment. Depressed, 
easily gone. And, uh, there's also these little groupings of where there's a talk, an article, and then some Q&A or some homework little things you can do that you can use if in your Kalyanamitsa groups. But, and also, if you do utilize any of those things, I would love to have the feedback of that because this was an experiment on my part uh, to see really for all teachers in my community if doing this kind of extra work, because it was a lot of work, is actually of use to students. So I'm looking for feedback as to what is useful and not to students. So thank you for that. And go ahead. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.